Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Hey everyone. Thank you for being here. This past week has been... It's been a roller coaster for a ride I'm dying to get off of. Holy shit. As of this taping, Donald J. Trump is at Walter Reed Military Hospital. His chief of staff, Mark Meadows, said that the president's vitals over the last 24 hours were very concerning, and the next 48 hours will be critical in terms of his care. We're still not on a clear path to a full recovery. Now, before we get to Claudia Rankin today, there's been a lot of conversation around civility, about how people on the left are celebrating a family's illness. But I just want to clear something up, because no one is celebrating illness, at least not intentionally. What they are celebrating is the potential end of an era, a conclusion on this administration, an administration that has cost thousands of lives in its handling of the coronavirus, an administration that has separated children from their families at the border, has locked up non-violent tax-paying Mexicans, has called our troops suckers and losers, has spewed misogyny, assaulted women, mocked the disabled community, threatened the free press, circumvented and bent the law at his own will, lied, lied, and lied, paid $750 in federal income tax, they are celebrating the end of all of this. 
the potential end of all this. No one wishes this virus on anyone, or at least I don't. But cosmically, karmically, this is about the only thing in 2020 that has made sense so far. So I wish President Trump a recovery. I wish his family well. And I look forward to saying goodbye to them come November. Outside of this maddening week, we are still navigating this larger conversation on race in America. And there are few people wiser and smarter on this subject than poet, author, and professor Claudia Rankin. You likely first heard of Rankin back in 2014 when she published Citizen, an American lyric. It was a groundbreaking piece of long-form poetry. And in the aftermath of Michael Brown's murder and the ensuing protests in Ferguson, this text became essential. A rallying cry, a portrait of pain within the black community. It described racial relations as they were and as they still are. Her latest book is called Just Us, An American Conversation. It is the natural evolution of Citizen, a continuation of a conversation that needs to keep happening. Her focus in this book was to have difficult conversations with white people, strangers, friends, family, about how they think or don't think about their own whiteness. It has one foot in the past and one foot in the present, literally. On the left side pages, there are citations and footnotes, passages from American history. On the right side pages, there's her writing, set in the now. The brilliance of Just Us is that it turns these large systemic problems into digestible quandaries. Her approach is more granular. She's focused on situations you may find in your day-to-day -day life. Interactions at a grocery store, a dinner party, a theater, an airplane, a college dorm. In this book, she turns the theoretical into a reality. And regardless of the outcome in November, these difficult conversations will still be necessary. Even if we receive a President Biden and a Vice President Harris, we need to keep talking, we need to keep listening, and we need to keep growing. I hope this conversation helps you with that, as it did me. But before we get into it, Let's start with some backstory on why this talk with Claudia means so much to me. Enjoy. Claudia Rankin, I started this show four years ago. In the beginning, no one said yes to coming on this podcast. I admit you did not say yes to coming on this podcast. <laughs> I don't fault you for this. But I wanted to say this at the top. When I began the show, I made a list of about 10 people that I wanted to sit with. And you were on that list. Thank you. So thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Four years later. <laughs> well, you see, it's just patience. They say it's a virtue. I'm, I'm working on that. <laughs> No, I'm not saying it's a virtue. I'm just saying patience. 
<laughs> okay, so how are you actually doing right now? Well, I think I'm, there's a part of me that's totally fine. I'm home with my family. I don't have to travel. I can be on your pack pass and not leave my house, which is great. And then there's the part of me that is terrified, terrified about where the country is, what's coming, the virus, the spikes that are expected in the fall, the fact that 200,000 people dead almost, what does that mean for families across the country? And there's been no grieving as a country, no leadership from the top. So those are the two parts of me that make the whole. Where do you think your new book fits into those two parts of you? I think right in the center. The question of conversation is a question of what can we build together? Because the country is so broken in, on so many different levels and in ways that it doesn't have to be. That's what's tragic about it. I'm not saying that everybody should have the same political positioning or anything like that, but the divisiveness that has been nurtured by this presidency is outrageous. It's singular in my lifetime. You said that going into Citizen, your previous book, that you wanted to find language to mark the unmarked, the quotidian, the experiences and instances where you'd felt diminished, assaulted, ignored, and in turn for that book, you called your black friends and asked about a time where they were doing something ordinary in their life. And then someone close to them did something or said something that made them realize that in their eyes, they're no one. What was your framework going into just us? What if we just tried to speak to each other about these issues that we have not talked about, about whiteness, about how being in a country where white supremacy is foundational to our day-to-day -day lives and where anti-blackness is normalcy. Can we talk about these things? And one of the early essays in the book is me just going up to white men and asking them about white privilege as a way to start. Do you want to describe one of those early instances? I was teaching a class on called the construction, Constructions of Whiteness. And many of my students just interviewed people, their family members, their sweet mates. So I thought, oh, I could try that. I'll talk to somebody I don't spend a lot of time talking to, despite being married to a white man. Strange white men are not people I just fall into conversation with. Because I travel, or I used to travel for work so much, I decided to just use that time in airports and on airplanes approaching white men if they seemed open to talk about race. Many of them seemed trepidatious. Because it doesn't happen. And so that to me was fair, <laughs> a fair opening. But the conversations all went in different ways. Uh, and I wanted to document them and then look at them and take them apart in terms of what I was thinking, what they might have been thinking, 
what are, what are the facts behind the things that both of us thought. There's a passenger on the plane and you're in flight. And this person is someone that you have, by your description, a pretty easy, comfortable rapport with. I think there's some bonding over the Commodores. Mm-hmm. He then mentions Bruce Springsteen. That's where he lost me personally. <laughs> he then arrives at a line where he says, I don't see color. And it's a line that is presented to be fairly innocuous, but in your estimate has very real issues. What are those issues that you think people should be thinking about? Well, that man, I really liked him. I really thought, oh, if I met you in another place, we'd be friends. And in fact, we have become friends. He and his wife and my husband and I met for dinner and we've emailed a number of times. But at the time that I don't see color, to me, when people say that, it's a way of putting race under the carpet, which means then you're not acknowledging the ways in which racial difference and racial inequities are at play all the time. And if that kind of blindness is there, then who am I talking to? So in that conversation, I did say to him, ain't I a black woman? And maybe this is unfair to him, but you get the sense sometimes that white people in these conversations with black people feel like they have really put themselves out and are proud of themselves for engaging. And so my fantasy was that he would go home and say to his wife, I had this great conversation with this black woman. And so if you're able to label me as a black woman, then it's disingenuous to tell me you don't see color. It's completely disingenuous. And this problem of colorblindness is one that predates the man on the plane, of course. In your book, you cite the historic case of Plessy v. Ferguson. I'd like to quote from the court's ruling. Justice John Harlan wrote, In the view of the Constitution, in the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior, dominant, ruling class of citizens. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. That was written in 1896. It still feels relevant in 2020. How do you think we dispel this notion of colorblindness? Well, I think to call it out is one way to do it. I think that if you stay in the falseness of a narrative, then the narrative continues. But if you call it out, if you name it, if you say, you know, this is where it comes from and this is how it's incorrect, then a person would have to think twice before they insisted on it. I mean, you might decide, I don't care what Claudia says, I'm going to say I'm colorblind. But you would have thought about what I said, dismissed it, and then gone forward. And that, to me, is preferable than just being in an automatic, repetitious framework. So much of this book is you interrogating your friendships with white people. And you often come back to this refrain that I admit is kind of heartbreaking, which is, I thought I knew these people, 
I thought I intimately understood them, but their actions have revealed to me that I don't entirely understand them. And I wondered if in writing this book, you thought back to what your mother told you when you moved from Jamaica to New York City at age seven. She told you two very important things. One, that public school is awful. And two, you cannot trust white people. We moved here in the late 60s, early 70s. So she would have known about the string of assassinations that had happened from Martin Luther King going backwards. And it was an incredibly racially volatile time in the country. And as a woman in her 30s, moving from Jamaica to New York City, I think people had said to her, you know, the public schools aren't good. And that's probably because schools that had black children had been abandoned by the state with white flight and all of those kinds of dynamics that end up running the schools into the ground. The idea of trusting, how could you trust when these people were all being killed? So I think that was the the framework behind her telling us that at the time. But did you ever think back on your mother's words, especially while writing this book, as your trust in white people was tested over and over again? Yes and no. I think friendship is something that begs the question of being known and knowing. Like, you're my friend, I know you, and you know me. And then suddenly, no, you're my friend, but I actually don't know you. We can all imagine, for example, that Amy Cooper might have had some Black friends who were like, oh my God, she said what? She did what? So these moments when white people, I like to say, and it's sort of a joke for me, but in some way it's not a joke. It's like when white people go white. And and by that I mean suddenly they utilize their whiteness and depend upon the structures of white supremacy to protect them. So in Amy Cooper's case, it would have been, how dare you speak to me? You can't tell me what to do. This is a Central Park birding debacle between Christian Cooper and Amy Cooper. But when he asked her to put her dog, her dog on a leash, that was a black man telling this white woman what to do. And she clearly couldn't stand it. So suddenly the park is her park. And I think in those moments, you see white people reverting back to what they really believe connected to who they are as white people, because that's the kind of mobility they have in the world. On the subject of white privilege, I wanted to quote page 55 from your book. You write, I had accepted it as the truth, as social justice activist Ruby Sales would say, about the culture of whiteness. The lack of an integrated life meant that no part of his life recognized the treatment of black people as an important disturbance. To not remember is perhaps not to feel touched by events that don't interfere with your livelihood. This is the reality that defines white privilege, no matter how much money one has or doesn't have. From Appalachia to Fifth Avenue, my precarity is not a reality shared. Do you still accept that truth about whiteness? I do. I think... 
it's the given. White people are living a different life from other people. And it means that they have a mobility to move around, to enter their homes, to get in their cars without anybody asking them to justify ownership or their movements per se. And this is not just, I'm not talking about police even, I'm talking about your neighbors, your colleagues. At Yale, there was a a black student who was studying in a common space and fell asleep and another student called the police. So at any point in time, a black person can be asked to basically show their papers, you know, justify. And if it goes wrong, that's their life. And you can say, well, that was a one person who might have mental issues. And black people have mental issues. You don't hear them asking people to prove that they live in their house or to prove that they are entering their own cars. Can we speak of your own livelihood for a second? You were diagnosed with breast cancer five or six years ago, right? That's correct. How did that sudden reminder of your mortality inform your day-to-day? You begin to value life in a new way. It made me more alive to the world, more responsible to it, more willing to say what I would want, what I would like to happen in this world. Because one, I feel like I might not have another chance. Two, we're actually in extremely dire times. So I think the both things together really was the engine under Just Us, under this book. Do you think prior to that diagnosis, you were at times reluctant to say what you wanted to say? I think working on Citizen helped me think about what I valued, where I was allowing things to continue that I didn't think should continue. People, I was trying to use the writing to identify certain dynamics that not just me, but Black people in general were encountering over and over again. I am by nature not a public speaker, not a person who is an extrovert. So to be out in the open does feel unnatural to me, but sometimes you just got to do it. Sometimes you got to get on a podcast. (laughs) Your domestic life is part of this book. And as someone who comes from several divorces within my family, it seemed that you were transparent about the issues you and your partner were facing and, I don't know, may still be contemplating. How was that? You know, I think the cancer diagnosis in my life and perhaps in other people's life kind of functions like a midlife crisis where you kind of want things to change because you've suddenly run out of time. So the desire to leave my marriage had no real destination beyond the desire. It wasn't like there was somebody else out there or anything like that. 
it was just a kind of change that I wanted at the time. And we, as a family, would have moved through that. And we did move through it. This is now five years later. But I included it in the book because my husband and I were in therapy. I was surprised that of all the things that got said, that the thing he thought was the worst thing I said, as a white man, he could remarry quickly. He shouldn't be too worried about this. And it's always surprising to me how wounded white people are when they're called white. And obviously the situation with my husband is complicated and more layered than just that, but that he would name that as the greatest infraction, when I could have thought of like five others, <laughs> I found that really interesting. And that's, so that's why that ended up in, in Just Us, because that, that idea that whiteness and white supremacy are intricately tied is known to all white people, which is why they don't like the use of the word white. You said that together you two had to move through this moment. What did you have to move through? I think it was a moment where my life was broken open and it became an opportunity to restructure it and rebuild it in ways that felt healthier and more sustaining in the long term. Because you're writing about, can this relationship between yourself and your husband, a white man, who's been part of your work, an integral part of your work, predominantly focused on race. Can we laugh? Can we experience joy, independent of the very real and serious work that seems to encompass every inch of our lives? I want to ask you, can you? Can you laugh? Can you find joy? Have you? I mean, yes. I think in a sense, we have a child. That child has brought us a lot of joy. But I have to say that there is a way in which it's a difficult proposition. The joy so often, or the laughter so often, is around atrocities or around twisted moments in our lives. Like, not long ago, I went to walk the dog, for example, and it was early in the morning. My husband wasn't, he had gone out. He, he had an early appointment, so he, he had left and put the alarm on, and then I left and, and forgot to turn it off when I was leaving, and we put it on. So anyway, I leave, I'm walking the dog, I come back, and there are policemen at our house because the alarm has gone off. And I didn't have my phone, so I couldn't answer when the alarm company called. And so I, I arrive at my house, I put in the code, I enter my house, I turn the alarm off, I go back to talk to the policeman, and then my husband drives up. And the policeman turns to my husband and he says, she said she lives here. <laughs> Even after we have just gone through this whole thing where I open the door, I turn off the alarm, I say, I'm sorry, I took the dog out, I have the dog. And then John walks up, he says, 
um, she said she lives here. Does she live here? And so a moment like that, as appalling as it is, the minute they leave, we're, you know, we, it's funny, but it's not funny. It's funny, but it's not funny. And so we have a lot of moments like that. I don't want to laugh. So I... <laughs> but you see what I mean? It's the laughter comes out of these, these really outrageous and ridiculous moments in our lives. I also sense that it sort of demands this question of, can't there be something more to life? Exactly. Can, can we get beyond this? There's no beyond. Is that your answer? Yeah. <laughs> there is no beyond. I mean, I really believe that. I think there is, there are timeouts where other things are going on and you're having a good time. But what's, I would, maybe not unique, but what is reliable is that often those times are interrupted by moments that reroute them into knowing that, oh yeah, there is no out. There's a quote that appears twice in the book. You quote Fred Moten, who writes, the analysis of our murderer and of our murder is so we can see we are not murdered. We survive. And then as we catch a sudden glimpse of ourselves, we shudder for we are shattered. Nothing survives. The nothingness we share is all that's real. That's what we come out to show. That showing is, or ought to be, our constant study, which seems to be in line with what you just said. Exactly. That moment being shattered or understanding the repetitions of the attempt to shatter is where the laughter comes in that is no laughter, in a way. There is very little laughter in this chapter called Tiki Torches. And I wanted to present this to you. How would you describe this section of the book to people who haven't read it yet? This is a chapter that has to do with having a longstanding friendship with somebody and sharing a history with them, but then having that moment when you realize that your understanding of that history and their understanding of that history comes from different points of view. And this was a college friend. When we were in college together, the semester before we arrived, there was a cross burning. When I got there, I was told about it. And he apparently had no idea it had happened. And when I brought it up, there was a real confusion, so alive in my mind. And yet he managed to go four years without having any knowledge of it. So that, that's the beginning of the investigation inside our conversation. The beginning happens in 1981, in the fall before you start at Williams College. And you have another friend who does remember the incident. And I actually think it's her response, someone who does remember that is more curious. I didn't remember that she was the one who reported the incident. I don't even know if I knew that, but she might have been the person who told me about it. When she 
writes to me about it, she says, I wonder if the guys, the students who were involved in it, look back and are ashamed of what they did. And I thought, wow, we are in a country where 62% of white men voted for a president who says, I'm a nationalist. Use that word. You think that those men looked back with regret on that? That's surprising. And so that, that was a moment that surprised me, yes. Emily Dickinson says, are not all facts dreams as soon as we put them behind us? That quote has been circling in my head like a refrain as I've tried to understand the moment we're in, how facts can so quickly dissipate. And, and I think dissipate for white people, let's say that, because I think for black people, the history remains present because it's repeating itself in slightly different ways over and over and over again. We don't have the, um, the benefit of walking away. It's constantly, the devastation is constantly being put in front of us. So that facts as dreams is not something we can partake in. If anything, the dreams are deferred, as Langston Hughes told us. Do you think white people are not deferring those dreams right now? (laughs) I'm thinking. What's always suspicious to me is when we see whiteness acting, how much of whiteness is it? So when we see the Portland moms coming out in support of Black Lives Matter, for example, what percentage of whiteness is that really? When we see the Women's March after the inauguration, how, what percentage is that really? And how consistent will that response be going forward? And I have these moments where I have these glimmers of hope that maybe actually white people are starting to grapple with the reality that's in front of them and not deferring or forgetting just looking at it as the present reality and understanding that it's not going to go away and that they have to get involved and they have to do something about it. We'll only really know if that's a sustainable position going forward. Certainly in the last five months, I have seen things that have given me hope and pause. Like what? The cross-racial protests, the suburban moms, hashtag suburban moms, those women who have been coming out supporting Black Lives Matter, the women who put themselves between the Black people and the police. All of those things are active, physical. It's not in your house. It's you actually went out in a time when COVID was a real threat to your health and said, this is as important to me as my own being. You wrote, awareness has to happen in rooms where everyone's white, since those rooms are already in place. Yeah, I think we have to, you know, when my mother said, don't trust white people, I think that's what she meant. She meant that once you walked out of that room, you had no 
real trust that your interest was being held by anybody in that room. So is it possible for white people to be anti-racist, to want equity beyond the self? Is that something that can occur? You know, we've seen corporations for the first time saying that they're invested in creating equity. Corporate America, we've seen universities, we've seen people, individuals, suddenly stepping up and calling for justice, modes of equity, all kinds of things that we've not heard before from people we've not heard it from before. So will they carry it through, which would mean sharing resources? We'll see. Hopefully in two years I can say, and it was carried through. (laughs) I think the only way it can get carried through, first, we need to eliminate any line of thinking that starts with, I'm not racist. I think we got to start there. Because if we cannot get past that. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. 
Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant. AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. If we cannot admit that we are, mm-hmm. I have a hard time believing we'll make progress. Exactly. But for the first time... I feel like I'm able to have discussions with white people where you don't even have to discuss that. I think where we have to go also speaks to the chapter on the social contract that you write about. You are at a dinner. President Trump is brought up. Someone at this dinner is writing a book on him. The subject of race is apparently not in the log line of this book. You, in turn, contest this omission. After some cordial back and forth, a tray of brownies, some dessert, is presented, and a woman at the head of the table says, How beautiful! Homemade brownies on a silver tray. What happens next? When she says that, I turn to her and say, am I being silenced? On a certain level, effectively, ends the dinner party. Because to break the social contract that you're not going to call out these moments where a person is being told that's enough of that. That's enough of your race talk. To call it out means that you are now the problem. Who let her in here? <laughs> you know, and then the woman turns red and is looking at her hands and everybody's staring at you like, look what you did. You made her unhappy. What is the social contract to you in that moment? It's a kind of civility that allows white people to live with the untruths around their own collusion with white supremacy, anti-Black racism, among other things. We could extend that to the detention camps for undocumented children. We could extend it in a lot of different directions. But the sort of deep-seated racism in this country is causing Black people to lose their lives. And white people seem to be okay with that. So the contract is that you don't bring that up. You don't disturb their lives with the loss of your life. Claudia, as a person in that room, sitting around a dining table where cordial conversation is being had, even if it gets to the topic of race, it doesn't go past a certain temperature, a certain velocity. 
how did you find the fortitude mm-hmm. or courage to risk those friendships in that moment? It's not courage. It was really passion. This is important to me. And these were not people I knew well. Oh, perfect. <laughs> so <laughs> you buried the lead. <laughs> they seem like nice people. I'm sure they are nice people too. It's really, I think, an inability to stomach what's happening now and the falsity around the narratives that are being created that justify this moment. This was one of a number of white men I have seen in academic situations who keep insisting this was just economic, that he, his rise to power was only economic. I feel like those 62% of white men who voted for him give them the benefit of the doubt. If he said he was running on racism, maybe that's what they voted for. Don't tell me that there was another agenda that was unspoken, but clearly the guiding light. And we have seen Charleston, those men came, lined up, and said, you will not replace us. Jews will not replace us. So that's not economics. What are you thinking about? (laughs) I was thinking, okay, calm down. (laughs) But it, it definitely is, you know, it's just mind boggling to me, the the insistence on blindness in this country around white supremacy. Why would you tell yourself to calm down? Oh, just because I could hear my voice getting louder. I was like, wait a second. (laughs) I mean, you know, you weren't telling me to calm down. I was just like, okay, enough. I, I bring that up because it's sort of a meta conversation about the conversation in this book. Your voice was raising. Yes. Why shouldn't it? It's not that it shouldn't or it should. It's just that I know that you're not the person. Who <laughs> it's like preaching to the choir here. So I wasn't feeling. Can I say this is, and this is no saintly act, but I can handle a mild moment of discomfort because the thing we're doing right now It's as much for us as it is for strangers in places all across this country, in places that aren't America. So I wouldn't hold back anything that felt truthful, especially not at my expense. (laughs) No, no, no. I thank you for that. Sometimes I do feel like it's exasperating when you actually put yourself in those moments, it just feels so exasperating because it's a, so, you know, so many people have said, I'm not having these conversations and you and your book and your conversations can go wherever you want to go, but I'm not having them because I'm too exhausted. And I know where that comes from. I feel it in my body, but I just don't think for me personally I have that choice. I, anything I can say and do towards writing the ship of the wreck of a ship that we're on right now, 
to me, I feel like I can hold that exhaustion for that. When did you realize you didn't have that choice, that you had to ride the ship? Oddly, the more you know, the more you understand what's at stake, I think. You know, in 2015, a lot of people said to me, there's no difference between Clinton and Trump. Either I'm not voting, I don't care, they're the same person. And I kept saying, no, for you, they're the same person because you're white. For me, it could be the end of my life. It could be sanctioning police killings. It could be detention camps. It could be, and now it turns out it's really a disregard for the entire country and for the entire democratic process. But that way in which white people were like, they're no different. I'm like, yes, there is a difference. Listen to him. Hear what he's saying. Know that this will break us. And now people are like, okay, there's a difference. <laughs> but they had to wait to experience it. I'm like, why did you have to wait until things were broken to see? I think part of the reason there was a lack of acknowledgement or willingness to see the difference between Hillary Clinton and now President Trump is that there was a lack of energy to change the conditions, which I think are described quite beautifully in James Baldwin's The White Man's Guilt, which appears on page 68, if you'd like to read it for listeners. Yes, of course. James Baldwin, The White Man's Guilt. I have often wondered, and it is not a pleasant wonder, just what white Americans talk about with one another. I wonder this because they do not, after all, seem to find very much to say to me. And I concluded long ago that they found the color of my skin inhibitory. This color seems to operate as a most disagreeable mirror. And a great deal of one's energy is expended in reassuring white Americans that they do not see what they see. This is utterly futile, of course since they do see what they see. And what they see is an appallingly oppressive and bloody history, known all over the world. What they see is a disastrous continuing present condition which menaces them, and for which they bear an inescapable responsibility. But since, in the main, they seem to lack the energy to change this condition, they would rather not be reminded of it. Does this mean that in their conversations with one another, they merely make reassuring sounds? It scarcely seems possible. And yet, on the other hand, it seems all too likely. What does that piece mean to you in 2020? Well, you know, there was a, a woman, I don't know if she was an artist, but she was talking about the removal of the statues, the Confederate statues. And she said, I don't know why white people are worried about the removal of the Confederate statues. If they want to think about that, all they need to do is look at me 
and my blackness. And there it is for them. And so there's a way in which that thing that she uttered is for me what Baldwin is talking about, that the the disconnect is really a refusal to hold the history fully. There was a descendant of Thomas Jefferson, a white man who recently said that they shouldn't take down Monticello because Monticello was the perfect reminder of everything. It was the slave quarters that sustained the grand house. And it was all built in one. And you couldn't have one without the other. And I thought that was a really astute comment that when the thing brings all the history with it, then that's the most honest moment that you can get. And white people have been able to move forward and forget, segregate themselves from half the history. And that's why they don't like um, neighborhoods being shared with Black people, because it brings that other part of the history into their day-to-day lives. You bring up the history of Thomas Jefferson. I want to quote it. He wrote, But never yet could I find that a Black had uttered a thought above the level of plain narration. Never see even an elementary trait of painting or sculpture. In music, they are more generally gifted than the whites with accurate ears for tune and time. Misery is often the parent of the most affecting touches in poetry. Among the blacks, misery is enough, God knows, but no poetry. It cannot produce a poet. You talk about holding history in the palms of our hands, and I couldn't help but read that last line. Among the blacks, misery is enough, God knows, but no poetry. It could not produce a poet. One of the reasons I wanted that in there was because it was a moment to have that conversation with him. There are many white men now who will say, Claudia Rankin is not a poet. She has not written a single poem. (laughs) There was a student on um, Twitter the other day who said her professor said that I had never written a poem. So his position is not history. It is present. It's present day history. (laughs) But I think that moment for me was a moment of that kind of laughter that I referred to earlier with my husband, that the funny, not funny, it's funny. And then it becomes tragic the way it continues. The poets, it's not that I am in need of their recognition. God knows, no. But I feel bad that students have to be tweeting things like, My white professor said Claudia Rankin is not a poet. They have to feel like they have to stand up for me in the face of that, even today, even in 2020. And forget about me. Like, if they're saying that about my work, what are they saying about other Black people's work? How are they qualified to be teaching that person in the first place? And so that kind of thing becomes bittersweet. When I feel the moment building 
in all the ways and all the conversations that I know exist around a moment like that. It's been building for you for three decades of writing, and I can't help but shake what a white woman who came up to you at a book reading said to you. She said, I've been doing anti-racist work since the 80s. I'm here to tell you, it makes no difference. You know, when she said that, we both just started laughing. Well, I started laughing and then she started laughing. That sense of you just pushing a rock up a hill, lady. (laughs) But what's interesting to me and what I appreciate in the work of people like Ibram Kendi or Robin D'Angelo is not so much that they will convince people to behave differently, is that they are naming dynamics that are that we recognize. I feel like I have the ability to describe these dynamics, but they have the ability to name them. So that suddenly we are now at a point in the culture where we have language for certain dynamics, either white fragility or white defensiveness. Whereas before you were like, and then he said this, and then I said this, and and da, 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 da. And now you can say, white defensiveness. (laughs) So I feel like in that sense, she's wrong, that the work has allowed for the seeing of things. Maybe it hasn't changed the way white people behave, but it's allowed people like me to know what to call it. Do you feel like your work has made a difference? I don't know. I know that my work has been supported and read by people And I hope that it's useful to them. And I know that for me, I value the books that I value. And they help me think about things in the world. So it's a real honor that other people hold my work in this, you know, in a similar way. How about you, Claudia? To write what you write, has it helped you operate through the world? What's exciting to me about creating books is how the structure of the book helps the content of the book breathe. And to me, it's not just a question of writing a book. I really need for the way in which the book is structured to somehow communicate the content. So in Just Us, I feel like the task before me was how in the age of fake news and no science can I make a book that brings the facts back even as we're talking across the table from each other in quotidian ways, but with the carefulness of the archives and research, and also with the randomness of associated thinking. And so that's why I wanted the book to have the verso recto pages communing with each other. And when I figured that out, that was an exciting moment for me as a writer. So it's not 
as if I, the books live out beyond me. It's the time when I'm making them that I feel the most alive. That it's, it's like I'm doing calculus. Like I'm really, I have these math problems. <laughs> and I'm trying to figure them out. And then suddenly I figure out, okay, this will go here and this will go here and this will be in conversation. And the Fred Moten quote, it's going to happen twice because I really think it's the most important quote in the book. And, you know, like things like that. And that, that to me is why I write, why I make things. I'm so glad you make things. And in leaving this conversation, I want to go to your final chapter. In it, there are some urgent words that I think people really need to be thinking about right now. You write, in most cases, we have already decided about everything and everyone. But real thinking, the effect theorist Lauren Berlant writes, interrupts the flow of consciousness with a new demand for scanning and focus. To be forced into thought is to begin to formulate the event of feeling historical in the present. What does that mean to you, feeling historical in the present? You know, I'm a great fan of Lauren Blonde's work. And in fact, her book, Cruel Optimism, is right on my desk, <laughs> right here. And that sense that you allow yourself to stand right now in this moment with the history of the moment and the ways in which it shapes you and shapes what I'm saying to you and what you're saying to me and what's happening in the world. That's not scary for us, that we can live with it. We can take it into account. In some ways, it can determine what our next step should be i.e. voting in the 2020 election. You know, so I, I, that the end, I really wanted the closing of the book to engage what it means to feel yourself as part of a public, part of, not that there is a single public, but that we have a sense of connection with each other and that we believe that your livelihood and my livelihood and her livelihood and his are all important. And that there are ways in which we can get each of us to live without feeling precarious from moment to moment. Since you do have the book in front of you, would you mind reading from the bottom of 333 and 335? Not at all. As a naturalized citizen, I am as connected to the ones who say, go back to where you come from or send her back as I am to the democratic process that names me an American citizen. And as unknowable as I am to anyone else, I forever remain in relation to everyone else. I am not a part of the one, but I am one. There is no beyond of citizenship. A stranger tells me he thought the goal was understanding himself as different from, but then he came to understand his sameness. He came to understand himself to be living also among other humans who are not white, living within a structure set up to disenfranchise 
those others. Arthur Jaffa said, as a black person, you know whiteness and experience it. How do you contain that and white people who you know and love? I might extend this to all persons who you know and love, each one, one at a time. Our lives could enact a love of close reading of who we each are, the love of a newly formed, newly conceived one, made up of obscure but sensed and unnamed publics in an yet unimagined future. What I know is that an inchoate desire for a future other than the one that seems to be forming our days brings me to a seat around any table to lean forward, to hear, to respond, to await response from any other. Tell me something, one thing, the thing, tell me that thing. Thank you so much. I'm sorry I waited all these years to talk to you. It's been a pleasure. Four years ago, I asked you to come on, and in the aftermath of reading your new book, my understanding of the world around me changed, shattered in the same ways they shattered after reading something like The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin or The Brown Bag of Miscellany by Sora Neale Hurston. And so it's okay that you took four years. You could have taken 40. (laughs) Maybe I walked. (laughs) Claudia Rankin, thank you very, very much. Thank you so much. our show. Special thanks this week to Elizabeth Shreve, Emily Skillings, and my dear friend, Metamarie Kongsved. Claudia's latest book, Just Us, An American Conversation, is available wherever you do your reading. If you'd like to learn more about Claudia, you can visit our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. If you'd like to hear more talks with writers, journalists, authors, and poets, I'd recommend some conversations we've had with people like Elizabeth Gilbert, Noam Chomsky, Morgan Parker, Malcolm Gladwell, Fran Leibowitz, Wesley Morris, Gloria Steinem, and many, many more. You can find all of those on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And if you'd like to join our mailing list, Drop me a line at sam at talkeasypod.com. You can also email our show at talkeasypod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible by our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Associate producer Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. 
Our assistant editors are David Harding and Rena Zhang. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Marketing by Patrice Lee. Our interns are Juliana Rector, Grace Perkins, and Ian Simmons. Graphics by Derek Gaberzak and Ethan Seneca. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week with Representative Ilhan Omar. Until then, stay safe and so long. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.